Hey there, this is Eric Stoyer, and I'm one of the co-hosts of a new podcast from Movie Maker called Actual Facts. We talk about documentaries, and we interview the filmmakers behind them, and we talk about things we've been seeing and thinking about. We're dropping the first three episodes of Actual Facts here in the Movie Maker podcast feed, and you're just about to hear one of them right now. You can find us on our own feed by searching Actual Facts wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can get there just by hitting the link in this episode's show notes. Thanks. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Actual Facts, a podcast about documentaries. I'm Eric Stoyer, and with me today, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Jason Beatrew. Jason Beatrew, how are you? I'm doing really well today, Eric. How are you doing? Oh, that's great news. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm having a good week. I'm feeling pretty good. I've been uh, trying to use some pretty good habits <laughs> this week, so that's been helping. D- do tell. What, what, what kind of habits are we talking about? Drinking more water. That's a big one. Drinking more that's water. That's a huge one. Yeah. No, the main one yeah. is that I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I've been really limiting the amount of kind of garbage I take in uh, through my phone, <laughs> and mm. uh, that's made a big difference. So, uh, You mean like, like Twitter kind of doom scrolling stuff? Or? Yeah, Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah, all of it. You know, just uh, limiting. You know, obviously these are well-worn ideas that people uh, have <laughs> employed to feel less anxious and like their brain is a messy mass of chaos constantly, but... <laughs> Uh, it's worked for me actually just to limit the amount of stuff I've been looking at. So that's great. I, I wish I could say that I had uh, limited my Twitter consumption over the past week, but uh, uh, unfortunately, the opposite has been true. I've been pulled into many a Ron DeSantis tinged vortex. Oh, you lucky dog! <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been unfortunate. But um, but yeah, you know why not? Why not just get yourself all worked up while you're in at home and don't do anything about it? Exactly. <laughs> So oh, I had a, uh, a correction that I wanted to offer Jason Beatrew. Um, mm. In our first episode with Dana Goldfine and Dan Geller, filmmakers yeah. behind Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, the, uh, the fine Leonard Cohen documentary, I used the word interpretating, which is not a word. It came out of my mouth. I knew it was not oh. a word as I was saying it. Uh, I tried a little bit to edit around it to see if I could get it to sound like interpreting, and I realized I couldn't. So I at least want to acknowledge it in case anyone listened and is now listening and is like, that guy even knows that's not a word. I think mm. I looked it up online and there is like an archaic form of uh, the word. <laughs> but I wasn't going to try to make that argument that I was, listen, it's actually a word. Well, I just want to say thank you uh, on behalf of everyone that you owned up to this. It's been bothering me uh, ever since we recorded. Uh, I kept just in my <laughs> mind, I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to cause any undue duress on our podcast, on our friendship. Um, but really, it's been nagging at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to get it off my chest and for you to know that uh, I was aware of it so that you don't go on forever thinking ill of me. Uh, you know who would who would not make a mistake like that is um, the hosts of the other fine Movie Maker podcasts out there, including Movie Maker, also known as Movie Maker Interviews, where Tim Malloy, uh, he yeah. interviews filmmakers about new films that are out and talks them. A lot of great conversations out there uh, that you can go back into the archive and dig through. And then uh, another one that I would recommend is called The Industry, also a Movie Maker podcast that's hosted by Dan Delgado. And it is a documentary podcast that takes a look at overlooked film history. I enjoyed many episodes of the industry quite a lot. And speaking of Dan Delgado, 
Uh, he's got another podcast, which I was a guest on recently, and I recommend you check it out too, especially if you are one of the rare few who count the movie Let It Ride as one of your favorites. <laughs> um, his new podcast, The Jockey Club, is a a scene-by-scene breakdown of the movie mm-hmm. Let It Ride, Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfus racetrack comedy from 1989. Sure. Uh, Jennifer Tilly, Terry Garr, uh, Robbie Coltrane, many other greats in that film. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, I, I was on a recent episode. Go check that out if you have a minute. We're actually about 28 minutes, I think. And I do want to say that I listened to your episode of The Jockey Club and uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. And just in general, it's hard for me to think of a movie that's more deserving of a scene-by-scene breakdown <laughs> <laughs> than Let It Ride, which was a family favorite in my house. Yeah, you mentioned that. So you've uh, you've seen it multiple times, all right? Many times. Well, I grew up I grew right up I grew up right up the street from Santa Anita Racetrack, and it's fair to say that uh, my dad was you know <laughs> fond of the ponies. <laughs> when I was like uh, in fifth grade or something, uh, my my BMX bike got stolen, and uh, like a couple weeks later, uh, a a new uh, Diamondback bike showed up like in in my house, and I was it was the bike I wanted. I was really excited, but it was so, it was too expensive. I was never going to be able to get it. And my dad, and I was like, oh, thank my, you know, I'm so thanking my dad. He got me this bike and he said, well, you should thank Chris McCarron. <laughs> One of the most famous jockeys to ever come out of Santa Anita racetrack. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like your, uh, your dad may have let it ride that day. And you <laughs> got to <laughs> let yourself ride down Look the street. Proudly on your new together. Diamondback. Yep. As we're um, getting through some business here, I'll also mention that we have a brand new Gmail address. And uh, if you're interested in reaching out, yes, we sprung for a Gmail address. If you are interested in reaching out to us, recommending a documentary, giving us some feedback, saying hi, you can reach us at actualfactspod at gmail.com. I just checked it, and we haven't gotten any messages yet. I think because the email's only uh, been alive for uh, about a half hour. (laughs) Okay, so today uh, we're going to talk to the filmmaker C.J. Wallace about his documentary, Perfect Bid. came out a few years ago, I think 2017, 18. It's been out for a minute. But yeah. it's uh, recently sort of been recirculating on Netflix. Uh, came up for me as a top choice recommendation in the documentaries category. And so we, uh, we watched it. We, we reached out to CJ and had a great conversation with him. The film, um, well, it's about... The Price is Right, in a way. It's actually more than that about a super fan of The Price is Right. And um, we'll talk more about the film and uh, the story as we get into the conversation with him. But I will say before we go much further that I really liked it a lot. And I just, like, characters were so interesting and warm and funny. You know, I um, one time interviewed Errol Morris, and I referred to a documentary subject as a character. And then I caught myself, like, well, Errol Morris probably doesn't think of these real people in his documentaries as characters and he told me that no he does think of them as characters and he calls them characters so i feel quite comfortable calling the people in um in this movie characters oh really well yeah if you got the green light from errol morris i mean what else do you need yeah no i love the perfect bid also i i yeah i'm excited to share our conversation with cj who was super fun to talk to yeah he's a really cool guy uh on that note of price is right now we talk a little bit about comfort viewing today uh reason why is because i have found myself recently uh there's a lot of shows like great shows out there films too but mostly tv recently that i i know i would love 
And in some cases, like with Better Call Saul, I have loved. I've been watching since the beginning. Watch all Breaking Bad, obviously. Yeah. Love Better Call Saul. But this season rolled around, and everyone loves it. And we watched uh, a couple episodes, the first this part of the season, and, and I just found that I couldn't take the intensity right now. Like, I needed mm. to just kind of stay back from it for now. I'm sure that I will get to it. We'll get to it uh, at some point soon. But I just couldn't take it right now. It was not something that I wanted to end my night and go to bed after watching yeah. an episode of that. Um, and so yeah. it got me thinking about comfort viewing. And you and I were talking, and then we saw this movie. And Price is Right is like kind of ultimate comfort viewing, I think, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, it's the it's the epitome of, of comfort viewing. Uh, I was I totally understand what what you mean about Better Call Saul. It is it is great. I, I, I encourage you to check up on or catch up with it whenever you can. But yeah, comfort viewing, man. I mean, The Price is Right. I mean, I mean, I my main memory of that, and I think this is true for many people, is that like just like laying like for whatever reason being at my grandma's house and just laying on the couch at 10 in the morning <laughs> and watching uh, and watching Bob Barker come out and these you know delightful games and you know the the aesthetic of it was it's always everything's so iconic and, and the colors are so amazing it really yeah there was really a certain tone and, and feeling of the whole Price is Right experience that stays with you i think yeah an interesting thing about talking to cj about the film and just asking about his memories of prices right he said that basically everyone he talks to that's their memory of watching the prices right is like being homesick from school maybe being at your yeah. grandparents house kind of sitting on the carpet or laying on the carpet watching that show all the similar memories just of a uh, an association of a certain time but also like you were saying like just the the look the kind of um the repetition, the predictability of it. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I thought that would be an uh, interesting topic uh, of discussion for us. What for mm. you, what for you makes good comfort viewing? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. I, I mean, I'm trying to think, of, you know, I do think, I do tend to think about when, when I think about the most, the, the things that they are, are the most comfortable. They are, are a lot of things that from my childhood, from when I was very young, the Smurfs was my, my go-to comfort program, um, you know, and like you said, the repetition and the reliability of it, um, you know, like it, you weren't, there weren't going to be any real surprises in Smurf Village, yeah. you know, you know, every time that Branky, <laughs> Branky, that Brainy's going to get tossed out and land on his face and his glasses are going to be all messed up. You know, the beats are all going to be there. Gargamel's going to almost get him, and then he's not, you know? Like, maybe there's something that. Maybe there's something about stakes in the context of the of the show, but you know on a deeper level that the stakes aren't really real. Like, your heroes, the, the people you love, are never going to be in real danger. Yeah, the, the, those, the, those um, the stakes to me are a big part of it. Although, I will say, I was thinking about how a lot of procedurals feel very comforting, and those are... Everything from kind of hospital dramas to crime stories to, you know, like yeah. Aaron and I, um, not too long ago, watched a few episodes of Murder, She Wrote, which is literally in every episode about a murder, <laughs> but it's still quite comforting. <laughs> oh, man. I watched years and years and years of Law & Order SVU, which is the worst subject matter you can imagine. But uh, that was like literally my, literally my comfort viewing for many years was yeah like uh, law and order type shows for sure so some things that i i think of when i think of comfort tv for myself 
I Love Lucy, definitely my favorite show growing oh. up. Still love it. I uh, had an I Love Lucy poster framed on my wall <laughs> in high school. Golden Girls, The Jeffersons. I um. um, I think back to um, it's not a not a TV show, but I used to read Jackie Collins novels in high school uh, and, <laughs> and junior high too. Really? So, yes. I don't know why how I got into them. I think that what's they the s- basic? Are those romance or murder mysteries? I don't know anything about Jackie Collins. Oh, uh, they have elements of all that. They're they're kind of salacious stories. They center on oh. rich people typically. Uh, several oh, okay. several of them are. Around, around the same characters. One of the series that I remember loving was focused on a character named Lucky Santangelo. I believe those are her name. Um, <laughs> Just kind of a dynasty. Uh, yes, type, 100%. Type of 100%. Okay. So those Got kinds it. of things. Uh, I used to love watching soap operas in the summer if I oh, didn't have yeah. something going on, game shows. Yeah. Soap operas. Um, my sister and I watched a lot of uh, All My Children. There was a real phase for a while. We we got a lot of those in. There's it's definitely you, you definitely get into a comfort zone with that. All those shows you mentioned were were big for me too. Lucy, uh, the Jeffersons. Um, what was the third one you said? Uh, Golden Girls. Oh, Golden Girls, huge. Uh, one of the biggest ones for me, like like middle school and high school, was Gilligan's Island. Actually, mm-hmm. I mean, it goes back to well before that because that's been in syndication since like the seventies or whatever. But like, man, like I, I I really got into Gilligan's Island at a certain point. It was a thing where like my my uh, my uncle Gary and I like for whatever reason we both like bonded over enjoying the silliness of Gilligan's Island. But that's a perfect <laughs> example of like. The repetition of the same thing every single time, you know, Gilligan's going to blow it. The, the, the setup is always the same, but the colors, are, that, that stands out to me so much in my mind when I think about that show. The iconic colors, like Skipper's bright blue, Gilligan's bright red, uh, Professor's is white shirt, the, the backdrop is green palm trees, you know, like all those, those sort of the, the, the very saturated colors of the time. Yeah. Like that, that really, you know, that, that's definitely a part of it. And, you know, and it's the most, the silliest show ever. It's like, you know, like the, the comedy is like, you know, the skipper hitting Gilligan with a hat, you know, it's <laughs> like, it's not like, <laughs> we're not talking about like big time jokes here. And, and interestingly, interestingly, a twist on that show is that like, uh, the, the, the stakes are kind of reversed where the real stakes when you're watching it is you're concerned they might actually get off the island <laughs> because you don't, you want the show to keep going. Right. right. Um, but, uh, but that's actually, that's, it, it that's interestingly, it ties into me with a, a bit with the, the perfect bid with it, with the prices, right. Uh, documentary and and the sort of uh, quote-unquote hero of that story uh ted theodore um but he like you said he was a super fan that that gilligan's island for me like it really did like maybe eighth grade or something got into this sort of super fan zone where i was like reading books uh, about it there's like like you know uh, Bob Denver wrote a book. Yeah. Uh, the professor Russell Johnson wrote a book, and, and and Sherwood Schwartz wrote a book. Like I read all these books, and like I had like you know I started sort of like amassing this like trivia knowledge about Gilligan's Island, some of which unfortunately is still in my brain. Skipper's name is Jonas Grumby. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but like, it, but it is interesting that there's these certain things like like for me that that they got ele- elevated to a level where. It's almost like my mind just got stuck on them for some reason, and I just needed to sort of like you know dig the the uh, the well of knowledge deeper and deeper for no reason whatsoever. I was thinking also about podcasts and somewhat related to the things we were talking about at the top here. 
about just taking in intense information content yeah. all the time. There's a type of intensity, especially on the internet, that's just about the barrage of stuff, different images, jokes, everything, uh, bad stuff. Um, mm. But then part of it is about uh, feeling like you need to be spending a lot of that time focused on finding things that are fundamentally important. You know, I, I realized that with podcasts, for instance, I was spending so much of my leisure time looking for things that were really making me more stressed. I was hunting down conversations uh, that I wanted to like yeah. break, break my brain open and make me think about things in a new way. Uh, but but yeah. that becomes its own trope. And those kinds of conversations, they become structured around the intent of scratching that itch without there really being enough substance there. And so all you're left is mm. with the, um, the stressed out part, listening to these conversations about uh, everything, climate change, racism, and the, and the rise of uh, your buddy Ron DeSantis. And <laughs> these are all important things to pay attention to and to be engaged with, of course, but they're not necessarily comforting. And you do have to unplug from it sometimes. And uh, so I've been trying to take more time and make more of an effort to, to spend my podcast listening hours uh, on finding stuff that is not causing me to be constantly on edge, you know? And uh, yeah, I get that for sure. I think there's like an addictive nature of anxiety. I think that there's a, there's a self, whatever, like a, I don't know what, what the right word, self-perpetuating aspect of it, where when you feel anxious in the world for whatever reason, you, you seek things out, even if it's more coffee and then more intense subject matter to like ramp yourself up even more. I don't know why the re natural response to being anxious is to make it, make yourself even more anxious, but it seems to be the case. That, uh, that definitely rings true with me. And, uh, I don't know why either, but it definitely rings true. Other things I was thinking of that I know people feel this kind of comfort from from viewing are you know sports, uh, reality yeah. TV. There's you know no judgment, but that's it's not for me. But I totally get why people like it's the same. Yeah, uh, the the same impulse that we we're talking about here. Um, I know. Yeah, that, I've been that, I've been watching a lot of baseball. Lately. Yeah, yeah. you've been watching uh, like like current baseball, right? Because I'm I'm also yeah. been, I've been I've been thinking about how much how much is devoted to like baseball games from 30, 20, 10 years ago uh, and people like whole networks and tons and tons of YouTube pay, uh, channels built around just showing old sports, yeah. uh, not yeah. even highlights, not even like monumental games, but just like sitting there and watching a baseball game from 20 years ago, like how yeah. that's a type of comfort for people. Uh, same with game, game shows. There's like, you know, these old tons of game shows online that are not anywhere even remotely current. There are yeah. zero stakes at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the no uh, big guesses on who's going to win the hundred thousand dollar pyramid or whatever. But, right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I have done that. I have I've sought out uh, St. Louis Cardinals games from the eighties, which is like you know just back into comfort childhood times, and and it's like you know to see those old guys I was rooting for. But yeah, in the same time, I do I watch a lot of those games. I have the MLB TV subscription just so I can watch cardinals games almost every day and you know i don't i often d watch them while i'm doing something else they're quite long but <laughs> but but yeah it's it, that is kind of it's interesting to bring that up i wouldn't have thought of that when we were talking about it i was trying to think like what is my comfort thing right now and i and it didn't even click in well yeah of course it's it's the baseball game yeah, yeah. yep uh i was talking to my grandmother this week my dear grandma ruby and um 
she usually trends toward watching uh, Sopranos, Goodfellas. They just watch these things on loop. They sit there and they've watched the entirety of the Sopranos 13 times. Wow. Uh, as I have mentioned to you before, they um, they fast forward through the therapy scenes, which makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> Not Melfi fans. No. And um, <laughs> But recently, she, um, I guess, has been very drawn back into watching Andy Griffith's show. And uh, it, my, my grandma loves Andy Griffith. Yeah. Yeah, she watches it every night. <laughs> <laughs> she calls it Opie. Oh, the Opie show. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I just reminded me of like, or it just made me think of that because uh, it, it, the reason that she gave when she was telling me about getting back into it was uh, the exact thing we're talking about here. She's like, uh, you know, I, I'm at a, I'm at a time right now. She's, uh, she's been in and out of the hospital a bunch this year, mm-hmm. and uh, she's in her 90s. And um, she's like, I'm at a time right now where I just need to like watch something that doesn't make me stressed out. It's like, oh, that's, yeah, I totally get it. I'm, uh, I'm in, I'm in the same place this, uh, th- this week, this month. And, uh, so it kind of, yeah. kind of resonated with me, of course. Uh, she also, just a, a side note. She was telling me about, um, she's, she's, uh, always very proud to tell me about anyone famous who ever lived in the, uh, the Phoenix area. And so she was <laughs> telling me about how she called him Don Knott, uh, Don Knotts, of course, but uh, <laughs> yeah, said, yeah. You know, Don Knott lived here in, uh, Chandler, uh, and I said, oh, yeah. You know, he had a, he's a uh, <laughs> twin brother. Can you imagine two Barney Fifes? And I said, oh, my God. Uh, and then I looked oh, it up. Like... I looked it up, and, and Don Knotts did not ever live in the Phoenix area and does not have a twin brother. <laughs> Maybe she's thinking Otis, uh, thinking of Otis or something. Could be. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, it's, uh, there you go. I had a poster of Barney Fife on my on my wall in college. How could you not mention that when I told you the Lucy poster I had? You, you I it didn't it didn't click until just this second. Yeah, wow. I had just him as Barney, just a big old is great poster, black and white poster. Speaking of books, I read his autobiography, and uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna recommend that one. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Dom. Has the sense of it feeling like maybe he didn't write much of it. Uh, nobody wrote much of anything, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it exists. They hired a gossip columnist. He had 18 minutes on the phone with him. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Take it all down is all the time you get. And then I filmed the incredible Mr. Limpet. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah. It was, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of meat on that, on that bone. Yeah. Uh, final, um, Don Knotts. Well, I don't know. You may have m- several more. My final. Oh, Don. an hour. <laughs> um, my final Don Knotts uh, anecdote is that um, on on nine eleven, the nine eleven, not September eleventh mm. of some other year, mm-hmm. on nine eleven, um, pretty traumatic day, and uh, I let off some steam by purchasing the domain name donnots.net because I, for whatever reason, it popped into my head that Don Knotts <laughs> sounded like Don.net. Yeah, that's great. And I temp, I, I maybe for about a year had a website just with a picture of him. Uh, at, on the homepage, and that was it. And that's this back in the days when a uh, a domain name cost like ninety bucks. So this was like a serious investment. Wow, I it, I wonder if it's still available. I wonder if you can still get that one. I believe at some point I looked, and, and it had been um, scooped up by <laughs> by some enterprising uh, Don Knotts merch um, entrepreneur. Today it could be yours for eleven thousand five hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So hey, we have our our first uh, ad. We have what? Here. We've got an ad. 
So yes, big shout out to the folks at Evermoon Media. Evermoon Media offers an online video editing course aimed at beginners. You get real-world projects and footage to work on as you learn to edit. By the end of the course, you'll have used their assets and you will have been guided through the process of making your own professional video editor demo reel so you can start getting to work. So yeah, you know, you can try to learn a new skill on YouTube, but that can be pretty hard. It's unorganized, it's really easy to get distracted, and you don't get any feedback. So for me, I always end up getting just getting discouraged and quitting. And uh, film school, that's not an option for most of us because it's very costly and you might be working, can't attend classes, it's uh, not always focused on one set path. And so Evermoon Media's online course might be a great option for you. You get to take a hands-on approach and work on real-world projects with professionally shot footage. Yeah, you can download free assets like templates, presets, SFX libraries, music, 4K stock footage to work with. And throughout the course, you learn by doing. There's no better way. It's a hands-on approach. You edit all kinds of media and choose which footage you want to include in your reel, whether it's product advertisements or corporate video, stuff for YouTube, wedding footage. Yeah, you can you can sign up for free today. Uh, you don't even need a credit card to get going and, and just try it out for yourself. And uh, you can get more information about all of this at evermoonmedia.com slash learn. What's that URL again? I'll tell you. It's evermoonmedia.com slash learn. All right, man. So let's get into um, talking about Perfect Bid. Full title is Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much. Can you uh, can you give a little breakdown of what the movie's about? Yeah, so The Perfect Bid is uh, primarily about a guy named Ted Slauson, who, as you mentioned earlier, is a super fan of The Price is Right. He uh, went to a lot of uh, sc- uh, screenings or tapings of The Price is Right, and he committed a lot of time to learning and memorizing the uh, specific prices uh, of the items on the show. Uh, oftentimes, they'll repeat the, the same products, and so if you know what they cost in a previous episode, it gives you an advantage. So he would go to these tapings, he would help other contestants uh, on the show, and one time he even got to be a, a contestant himself. Uh, well, in 2008, uh, a guy named Terry Neese um, got a perfect bid on the Showcase Showdown. Uh, in case it's been a while since you've seen the show, the Showcase Showdown is at the very end of the show where these there's a, a big elaborate uh, suite of prizes. There's often a trip and or a car or like a kayak. And, and then so it's a prize package that's usually worth like tens of thousands of dollars. So never in the history of the show had anybody guessed the actual price of the Showcase to the dollar, except in 2008, this guy named Terry Neese, who happened to be sitting next to Ted Slauson in the audience. So it's not against the rules for Ted to help the other contestants and help uh, give them the answers or, or what, what the, he thinks the price might be. But what happened is Ted Neese went on to say that he did not get any help and he just guessed it and it just created this whole controversy, kind of brought the show to a screeching halt. So this story is basically this movie is, you know, it's kind of a love letter to The Price is Right, but a lot of it is just about Ted and his journey and, uh, and, and we learn about him and his fascination and, you know, and so primarily Ted's in it, but also Bob Barker makes an appearance. Uh, Roger Dobkowitz, like a longtime producer of the show is in there. Um, there's some fun with Holly Hostrom, one of the, uh, spokesmodels from the program. So, so yeah, and we just, you know, we learn a lot about Ted and, and it's a really fun and interesting film. 
Absolutely. And uh, C.J. Wallace, who we got to talk to, uh, we hit him up after seeing the movie, and he was game to talk to us. He's made a few other documentaries, actually some that are more current, uh, recent. And uh, he self-funds his films, and so he can kind of just pursue whatever he's interested in. It's cool to talk to him about the array of subjects that he's interested in that he's pursued for making films about. So, Yeah, he's got a, he's got a movie coming out about Jim McMahon, one about Tecmo Bowl. He's, <laughs> he's into all the cool stuff. <laughs> So yeah, with that set up, we will uh, let's go into our interview with C.J. Wallace about Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much. Hey, C.J. Um here to talk today about uh, Perfect Bid. Can you give us the the sort of log line on, on what that film's about? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a math genius from Texas who writes all of your guys' uh, like SATs to decide how smart you are in math. <laughs> He's that guy. Um, he, uh, he spent his life uh, from the very beginning memorizing and watching The Price is Right. Um, and you know, as the movie goes on, you see his journey with it and, uh, he, uh, has, uh, irreparably changed the course of that game show forever in its uh, 60 year history or whatever we're at now. And what was your relationship with prices right before doing the film? I, and I'm sure lots of people that you've talked to remember it very fondly. I'm think, you know, probably roughly your same age. If you're someone who is an enthusiast of the prices, right. Um, and I remember watching it when I would get to stay home on a sick day or maybe sometimes in the summer would be like a joy to watch when I was a little kid during the day. Definitely. I mean, uh, and going around with the movie for two years and now that it's back on Netflix, it's like it's starting all back up again. Um, it's, it's fascinating that no matter where I'm at in the world, everybody has literally the exact same story. Grandparents <laughs> homesick from school. No other way. It's been consumed no other way in television <laughs> history. So uh, I was going to say my grandma's couch, man, laying there, yeah, scarlet fever. Me too. Same well. thing. Yeah, absolutely. And for some reason, I just responded to those colors on the set. Like maybe it was because of Sesame Street that Ernie and Kermit and all them are like the same colors as those green and, and everything that was on the old prices. Right. But just totally. something about that show as a kid or, or maybe the, the, you know, the flashing lights or something. Who knows? But uh, I got hooked just the same as everybody else. Yeah, it's like Vegas or an amusement park, depending on what age you are. On, right. right there, right there on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hosted by your grandpa that you love. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, a TED? Obviously, the focal point, as you just mentioned, uh, is about a, a math genius uh, named Theodore TED. Um, yeah. So what? Uh, how did you first come across him and, and his story and, and get connected with him? I was doing some contract work, uh, just doing some editing, and uh, of course I was trying to avoid it at all costs, and uh, happened to see the Esquire article on uh, Terry Nice. Uh, so Terry Nice um, in uh, 2007 was, uh, got on The Price is Right, and in the uh, showcase he got the, uh, all the items exactly to the dollar, and it had never been done before. Uh, it was a year after Drew Carey took over for Bob Barker, and there was a whole bunch of new producers and things like that. So uh, the show traditionally is much more family feeling. Uh, the producers and the audience were sort of a give and take with, you know, family and things like that. And 
the new regime, the new regime was definitely more paranoid and concerned that uh, that people were trying to infiltrate the show or or screw them in some way. And um, so, uh, yeah, so they so they wrote an article about him, Esquire magazine. He was the he was the greatest star that <laughs> Terry Nice was the biggest <laughs> star going at, at that time. Um, so he got this huge feature article, uh, Bill Clinton's on the cover and right beside it's like Terry Neese. Like, <laughs> um, so anyways, it's this three page article about how Terry is the greatest prices, right player ever. And then right at the very bottom, it says, but there was this guy in the crowd, Ted Slauson continue to page two. you know, you have to flip the whole thing over and, you know, get to the very back of it. And, you know, then there was a half page article about this guy, Ted, and they just started go into him about it. And I just casually paid attention to the story. And I noticed one person's story wasn't ever being told. And the person who was always being given the microphone was somehow telling the story a hundred different ways, mm. which, you know, it doesn't take, you know, if you're casually paying attention to something, you can notice the variances pretty quickly. Yeah. That's uh that's cool to hear. Cause I, I, that was definitely my thought is that this could be a documentary about Terry Nice, of course, but uh, you chose the story of Ted, which uh, turns out to be such a, a great character. such a warm, interesting guy to talk to that. I love that. That's uh, what you ended up landing on. Um, what was he like to hang out with and, and how'd you get to know him? Uh, it was a Facebook message right away. I tend to, if I get an idea, I kind of want to do it right that second. Just, I feel like it just, things tend to go better when you just act on them immediately like that. Um, so I sent him a Facebook message and of course, anybody that gets a message that says, would you like a documentary about you? Uh, <laughs> traditionally that's gone well for me. Um, uh, and then it actually took, uh, probably five or six years till we actually got to shoot it. I was just doing a bunch of projects and was touring around with uh, musicians and doing a bunch of stuff. And just, you know, every four months being like, I promise, don't give up on me. We're going to do this. And, you know, <laughs> at, at the end of it, it was six years. But, you know, every four months we were kind of, you know, just sort of staying in contact. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, one day I, I sort of realized that that we could just, you know, it wasn't that much effort. And we all got together and and, and knocked it out over a day. He's he He sat there over the course of five hours and rattled off everything with no notes, no pausing, no looking at a phone prices wow. let that other people bid full stories. It, it's like, he's just, he's built to remember. <laughs> built to remember. Yeah. It seemed like he had his story pretty dialed in. I wondered about that. Yeah. And, and I unfortunately didn't know about fair use uh, laws at the time. Uh, you study a lot about film, but sometimes things pass you by and important things like that. And, and Ted is a, would have been a perfect example to, uh, to, be able to use fair use a little bit more and I would have been able to avoid uh, a lot of the drama I went through with uh, the executives at the show uh, trying to get this movie out. <laughs> so does it have to do with licensing or accessing footage from Press yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. If somebody's explaining things, you know, the way Ted explains it, he, you know, it's, it's like he's watching the TV, you know, doing Al Michaels play by play, but he's just, you know, out to dinner somewhere. Um, so, you know, to be able to say this person bid 1395 was wearing a red shirt, you know, you can show the footage and, and sort of, you know, make your movie that way. But, uh, I didn't know about that at the time. And we went the, the very expensive official route and it, uh, it, it led to a lot of chaos, but, um, yeah. So maybe some, some advice to folks in there if they're making their own films. 
Definitely. Uh, definitely explore your options with fair use. Um, obviously, you want to uh, pay people if you can, but there's certain situations where uh, fair use is very useful to, uh, to get things handled for yourself. The, the drama that, that you referred to that, that sort of unfolded, was that like after the film already came out or was it like leading up to the release? Did, did things get halted or what, what, how did that go? Yeah. Um, so I, at the time, I only had a little bit of money. And so we put all of our money into this movie to make it. But I wanted to make sure that I could get the footage. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to make the thing. Or if Price is Right is going to sue us for millions later on, I don't want to be involved. We'll figure it out a little <laughs> bit later when I get bigger budgets or scarier lawyers or something. Um, so we reached out to Fremantle, who does uh, American Idol and all these huge shows. And, and they own the Price is Right. And uh, we told them what we were up to. And they said, anything, anytime, we're happy to do it. So we said, awesome. And we spent all our money and shot it all. Um, and, you know, secretly, my intention was to edit a good chunk of the movie and slip it to Roger Dobkowitz, who ended up in the film. So that's a spoiler of where the story is going. But uh, I wanted to send him a little piece of the movie just so hopefully, I mean, I wanted all these people to love it, frankly, all the people that made the show, as long as they could almost watch it like a home movie. That was sort of good enough for me and, and that Ted got his moment to, you know, state his case when he hasn't for the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I showed Roger and he got very excited and and, um, and then uh, he got involved and, and by some miracle, we had a very like two hours to film one interview with Bob. Um, so once Bob and Roger got involved, then Fremantle and Mike Richards, who sort of came into the press recently for a bunch of things, uh, once we had Roger and Bob involved, and um, this sort of like a, what I described, this sort of new paranoid regime, things got much more complicated. And um, it was all leading up to uh, before the release of the movie. But I mean, we had spent all the money and, and uh, goalposts keep, kept getting moved farther and farther back. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to hear about how those logistical and legal confines end up shaping the story, you can tell to some degree. And people imagine that they see something and that the you know, license of the creator is pretty open and free, but you really do end up becoming beholden to some degree to these kinds of things. Right. And I can't ex obviously say how much it ended up being, but, it's, but it was per second that we were charged. So when Bob yeah. Barker, who has spent 50 years refining his craft and knows that it takes two and a half seconds to pull an actual retail price, one, two, uh, da, da, da. It's like that five seconds of drama that's like makes the whole scene cost you a used car. You know what I mean? So then, yeah. you're like, then you start cutting with the timing and then it sort of screws up the magic of, of the, the thing. So it was just very difficult. I, I, you know, I love the movie as it is, but like if there's some way eventually down the line to do a director's cut, it might have to happen because... You know, some people say it's it's our it should be a ten minute YouTube video, as it is. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was gutted from it that really, you know, sort of cements things a lot more, and I think is worth worth the effort of of sort of mixing around with it. But who knows? I, I actually really love that it's a small story about someone's. Yeah, you call it an obsession. I think it's more of just like we all have hobbies and interests that we're very devoted to, and this guy's happens to be the price is right absolutely and his his hobby has this outsized profile because it's a tv show that he became tangentially involved with but um what were you thinking about um in terms of 
thematically talking about obsession or hobbies through telling his story. Yeah, I mean, I guess I see my I've collected random things that I've been passionate about over time, and I guess it's you know, uh, I guess it's I don't see the humor in what he does. A lot of people might play the edit for you know looking at him sideways while he's doing these things, but you know, the fact that he you know says they normally call they normally tape on Wednesdays, so I thought about it and I called back. <laughs> you know, those are of course sort of insignificant things to the overall plot and some things that might annoy certain people. But the you know those are just you know like that's like Fargo to me or something like watching Bill Macy and Fargo like these little tiny 100%. quirks like those are what make. You're either gonna like the stuff that I make, or you're not. You know, pretty dramatically because it's. I like the little quirky things like that, and and you know, yes, it of course could be a ten minute documentary, but anything could be. And there's just you know, it's not defending the movie, but the you know, as you guys probably saw, there's a progression to it. Like the first time he goes, he's just sort of screaming from the audience, and then the seventh time, Bob, you know, is paying attention to him, and he screws up when he has the limelight and. You know, there's a progression to his thing that builds to something. So, yeah. you know, it, it could be probably difficult if you're sort of half looking at your phone sometimes or doing whatever. You kind of maybe have to pay attention to it a little bit more. But I don't know. I, I, I love Ted and it's any excuse to 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 show him off. We we took it. Yeah, and I I, I love Ted, too. I, I, I That's what I found myself thinking when I was watching it. Like, uh, like, I did you feel really fortunate that he was such a kind of. Uh, sort of i don't i don't know want to use the word condescendingly but he seems like a very sweet guy and he's very naturally compelling you know yeah. and, and his his since his interview like is such a, a prominent part of like the focal point of the entire story i felt like oh that you know you could imagine someone else who maybe was a little more camera shy <laughs> or a little less articulate like maybe it wouldn't have quite landed you know oh, totally because like if he's not fun to watch on screen you, you also don't really have much of a film right and actually because that was my first dog i mean i've filmed a, a ton of stuff over the last 20 years before perfect bid but I guess I just always shot friends or actors or people that I knew. And for some reason, I just sort of naively was just like, oh, he'll sit down and he'll beat the Ted that you saw. But I had never spoken to him in person. So to your point, he could have sat down and, you know, it's happened to me before where they just, you know, like get wide eyed and are terrified in front of the camera. And you kind of have to coax it out of them and, and use tricks to get them to be themselves. But yeah, I mean, Ted is, he has his, you know, he has his jokes and he knows he remembers every part of it. And, and he's, you know, like you said, he's very, uh, he, he's not sarcastic necessarily, but he's just very dryly funny. And, and yeah, he's, uh, he's the best. Well, one of the most amazing things that, that we see uh, from Ted are, are these, uh, these computer games that, that he wrote. Like, I think he did, I think there's two different versions yeah. <laughs> of a, a price is right. A game that, and you know, this wasn't, there wasn't game creation software back then. Like he had to code this thing from scratch and, right. and it had music and the graphics were really good for, for <laughs> the era like that. That was, so he was just happened to be a hobbyist game developer. Yeah. And like, that's the thing. He's just so random and he'll just say stuff and he's like, you know, he's like, he's almost like Forrest Gump. He'll just say that, you know, I'm working on this and it's some other random thing, you know, that's and I actually asked him about that because you know the the logo of of Price is Right is pretty intricate to do in that 
old timey computer thing. Yeah, exactly. But then when it says Bob Barker, it, it opens up to a green square. And I said, How come you didn't do like a little silhouette Bob? He's like, <laughs> I wasn't that good. I was like, But you did that S. And he just yeah. kind of rolled his eyes at me. So I guess maybe I hit a sore spot with him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I had a Wheel of Fortune game back in the early 90s and uh, <laughs> did, did not look as good as that. I mean, no. it was one that we purchased and it was not as not as good looking as that. Uh, needed some of the TED treatment. Yeah. Definitely. Yes, and he, people, he's gotten a lot like, you know, of course, as soon as you get on Netflix, every person in the world starts and he's he's been getting a, a, a substantial amount of tweets from people that whatever that program is, QBasic, that they're like hyper hobby, they're the TED of QBasics. And they're reaching <laughs> out and they're like, how did you, do, you know, and they're going back and forth about this coding. It's just, I, I don't know. It's the, Making documentaries, everybody's pulling for the subject that you're making it about. It's a very positive experience. And, and anytime I've tried to make a narrative feature, it just seems like uh, a couple people are trying to make it positive and a lot of other people are just coming in and leeching and vanishing. So the documentaries just tend to have a spirit behind them that, that sort of branches out and webs out past just whatever we filmed. And it's been pretty cool to watch with this one and, and uh, the couple of the other ones that we have uh, put out that, um, yeah, it's just cool. And, and so random like this, the girl, Susan, who in the red and the orange shirt, the blonde girl at the beginning, uh, she just found us this second time. It's come out on Netflix and we filmed an interview with her. We're going to put it up pretty soon. I cut together a little, you know, like a, a from her point of view of what happened that day. Oh, um, Cause awesome. she wasn't listening to Ted. She wrote the check game wrong. And, and, <laughs> right, right. and Bob thought she was flirting with him back and forth. She gave a really <laughs> funny interview. So uh, that's awesome. So we'll put that up on YouTube pretty soon. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the fan community around Price is Right. Um, so I'm sure there is one. It's alluded to a little bit in the in the film. There's some talk about people who have been saying mean things about Ted on the internet and on podcasts, which is something I can relate to. Um, yeah, <laughs> I got I got to know more about it. Like, what is the backstory there? Like, who's mad at this guy? Like, what do they what do they think he's done wrong? Like, that's what I didn't what I didn't get. Uh, I think it was just a thing where it was just some random guy that was just appear like, you know, for people that don't know the story intimately, I think there was just some sort of, you know, backlash anytime he sort of told the story, he was just telling it from, you know, his Ted point of view. And, uh, you know, I don't know why do people get anything mad about any of this stuff right, that, right. that happens, <laughs> but there's, there was a website and it may still be around called goldenroad.net. <laughs> and it was just sort of like, you know, every Ted in the world was on this page and, and Roger was on there and some of the other producers on the show were on there. And I, you know, it, it was probably more on there, like, like people, you know, Ted was posting on there forever before that. So there's just, you know, weird early internet relationships that you used to have with people yep. where you just kind of pick at one another. So I think it was, I think it was mostly that, like, you know, within the price is right bubble when you're in it, uh, it was just like a lot of static and, um, you know, we didn't get into it a ton about, you know, what was, what happened in the world around him, but, it, um, you know, he, the, the point of the story, I just wanted to show him. So it, it wasn't even necessarily a gotcha to Terry either. It was just sort of, I just wanted to tell Ted's story. And unfortunately, Terry was one of the speed pumps, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we reached out to him. I, I reached out to him a couple of times and, and asked him to be involved and uh, I didn't Terry. get a reply. Yeah. Terry, yeah. um, and then when the movie started to take, it got a couple of awards. Um, 
uh, one day I got an email from him that said that, uh, as I know, he's a 27 year uh, public figure from being a, a professional weatherman in Vegas, and I'm not allowed to use his rights as uh, his image as a public figure. Oh, uh, wow. so I hope I know that a lawsuit coming, blah, 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 blah. Terry. So I just re- yeah. So I just replied back and said, "Hey Terry, thank you for your concern. Uh, <laughs> as you know, being a 27-year professional, when you shine showed up to the Price Is Right, they had you sign a release. Uh, I've licensed that footage that you signed away. Uh, so thank you for checking with us. There's no <laughs> legal problems here. I uh, hope you like the film." Um, Meanwhile, poor Ted is being accused of stolen valor on the internet. Right, absolutely. And then, of course, because it's Facebook land, you can kind of check in on people, and and people were posting him and tagging me. So I was seeing these posts, and people are like, what's this movie? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I haven't watched it. I think it's something CBS made to uh, champion Drew Carey. And it's like, what? Why are you still telling fibs? (laughs) You're telling fibs. Um, but now he's now, unfortunately, he's deactivated his Facebook account. But I think um, mm-hmm. so. Uh, but that wasn't us. That wasn't our, uh, anybody. But he's yeah. definitely. That's probably good for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know how the Internet oh, is. So when it first hit Netflix, I think he probably got hit pretty bad with mm. just people that are, you know, loaded up and want to send off a tweet to somebody. But right. He got 15 years of living like a celebrity. So if you're doing that under false pretenses, you know, how things go, then I guess you got to do the flip side for 15 years. So absolutely got to pay the cost to be the boss, Terry. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, You got to meet Bob Barker. You mentioned. Um, Yeah. I'd love to know how that interview came out. Were you uh, were you at all surprised that uh, he accepted the invitation to do it? Yes, definitely. It was short notice. And actually, I was in Canada when I got the short notice. So I had to send a crew over there uh, that I had only worked with once before. Uh, and there was a, there was a few issues uh, with that. But um, I mean, really, the only thing was he just said, Roger said, you know, you got to be you got to be set up in 10 minutes because if it takes too long, Bob's old and he won't be a jerk, but he's just going to go, guys, I got to go. <laughs> so I had the crew outside an hour early with the camera on the tripod and the, you know, like the boom hooked up and they're just like carrying it in like Buster Keaton or something. Um <laughs> And uh, we sat down, and I I, uh, I had an actress friend of mine, female friend of mine, do the interview. Uh, so uh, you know, he once we got in there and set everything up, she asked him a few questions, and you know, we asked the the three or four we agreed to, and then of course, once he's sitting there and everybody's friendly, and we're talking the good old days, and he, oh, sit, you know, and then we got forty five minutes of uh, of of Bob on my hard drive saying all sorts of wonderful things. That's really great. Did you uh, did you reach out to anyone else like from from the show, like like Holly or we, anyone else like that? Holly is very elusive. Mm. Um, we tried very hard to get Holly. Um, and again, that Golden Road site was up for a little while while we were doing the pay, uh, doing pre production. Um, so there was rumors that you know this username is a friend of Holly, and they kind of check in once in a while. This 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 so. I messaged for probably six, eight we- uh, months to this person, and eventually they got back and they said the message will go to Holly. I was like, "Oh my God, I'm in the X Files. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here." Wow. Uh, and then we never heard anything. But I mean, she had the lawsuit and and all these things with the right. show. So I mean, she doesn't know what the movie's going to be about. And and at the time, Bob and Roger were involved. So if you know if there's any weirdness there still, then you know she's not about you know no matter how much she may or may not have wanted to talk to Ted. Uh, I get, you know, there's situations like that for me that I wouldn't want to go back for. It would just be way too difficult or too crazy. So I think it was a situation like that. 
And it's not what the story, not what your story is about. I mean, it's not what your the story you're telling is doesn't involve all that, right? Yeah, and actually, that that was another thing that the movie kind of took some bruises about. They're like, "Why didn't you talk about Bob's allegations?" I was like, "What does that, what does that have to do with anything to do with Ted?" And mm-hmm. I'm just going to stop the movie so to bring all this stuff up that you know, like I wasn't there. I'm just le- I'm <laughs> I'm showing Bob when what, what Ted saw through the eyes of the people in the audience. I'm not, uh, you know, I, this isn't this isn't uh, 2020 or anything like that. Right. I mean, there's a story there, but it's not this story exactly. It's not this story. Yeah. yeah. Right. If I wanted to make that movie about Bob Parker, it, that's yeah. It, Ted wouldn't have been in it. Right. Uh, and then on to uh, the, the the current host, you mentioned Drew Carey. Uh, the only clip of him, he's extremely dismissive of Ted, <laughs> uh, to say the least. <laughs> Did you, uh, was there any interest in reaching out to him? Is that, uh, I mean, he, he was the host uh, when, when Terry, Terry nailed it. Um, was that, was that something you tried to do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the time that we got to that part of the movie, it wasn't going to be an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually a lot of the edits came from Fremantle and Mike Richards came from that final episode. Um, there, you can see on YouTube and they act, they screwed it up. They sent me, when they sent me the screeners, they sent me uh, the unedited version of the pi- of that, of the perfect bid. And then uh, they, when I paid for everything, they sent me the full episode. And then I realized that they had recut the whole thing for TV and they accidentally sent me both versions. So this, Oh, wow. So I got to recut the movie after they sent me all this stuff and we agreed and they sort of screwed that up. So, um, but a lot of stuff from before that came out of that episode. Um, the episode started for some reason with Drew Carey when the doors open. They said, Drew Carey, and the doors open, and he shoves a garbage can out the door and hides. <laughs> and then there's like two beats, and then he comes out, and he's like, ah, I did it. And then he pushes it aside, and Drew and Ted just kind of comments on it and goes, and he's put out a garbage can, and he kind of goes, whatever that was, or just some, you know, Ted-ish <laughs> comment. Right. And that was like a, ma- you know, like things like that were a major point. Like anything that was sort of vaguely Drew-related had to come out. But that, that, that inter- so then it became the only way that I could sort of show the contrast of hosting was through that Kevin Pollack interview because he's cussing up a storm and Bob wouldn't swear, you know, if his life depended on it. So um just and that sort of was one of the negative things people said about the film was that you know like oh there's all you know it was a perfectly family movie until the end and the filmmakers just oh it was disgusting and i was I like i saw that's, that on, on amazon one of the i, I was laughing yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, you know maybe that's how you're supposed to feel i wanted i mean that's that's the point i there's no way that i could show so unfortunately that you know you gotta throw a grenade in sometimes right right <laughs> That was a long answer to say, no, I don't think Drew Carey wanted to be involved. <laughs> I, I kind of sent, <laughs> I sent a couple of jokey tweets after the fact over the years. Like, you know, I hope Drew's not just, you know, dumb Twitter stuff and, and he didn't reply. And I have a verified account. So like it went to, you know, it's like texting him basically. Um, and he hasn't replied. So, I mean, I'm sure one day we'll, we'll share a joint over it or something. <laughs> it's not that serious, you know? <laughs> totally. What did you What did you leave this experience of making the movie with? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, again, it, it sound I say we beat them, but it, it just feels very. It felt very good as a company that was, you know, I, I was just a guy, and I make the movie with my girlfriend and producer. We've for the last seven years. It's just it's our company. So to have this story and 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 really want to stand up for Ted and and get it out there. 
um, and, and to have all this interference and, and all these obstacles that like, of course, you know, while I was in it, it, it was a nightmare. Um, and it was insane to cut the movie five times in a month and all these things, but it just like, after that, and, and you get this huge company to sort of bow to you in a way, or just sort mm. of like relent from something that they were extremely against, uh, from that point on, it's as an independent company, it's like there's nothing you're sort of unshakable at this point. And there's been a few things that have come up along the way in other films that we've done that are about to come out or have come out or that we're making that 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 have equal weight to them and equal catastrophic things. And it's sort of fun to just shrug at them and be like, you know, after that first one, there's you know, we've kind of it's not nothing's really scary, it's just a video game, you know, you just jump over the guy and get past Bowser and then the princess isn't in the castle. And then eventually <laughs> one of these times the princess is there and, and hopefully it's a, you know, a palm d'or or something, you know? Right. That's life right there in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if you, if you stop and try to fight these things, it's, it just slows you down. So. Well, CJ, thanks so much, man. It's great to meet you and to talk. It's great. Uh, good to hear about your work. You guys, uh, I said, movie maker is royalty to me. I'm from Vancouver, Canada, so somehow it's, the the magazine slipped up through Seattle to us, and uh, I definitely uh, have been a long time reader. So it's cool to uh, ramble in here into the microphone for you guys. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. This was really great. So yeah, that was our conversation with C.J. Wallace, director of Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much. It is available to watch all over. Uh, I found it on YouTube. It's uh, it's on Amazon. I watched it on Netflix where uh, it's recently sort of been repositioned as a uh, promoted documentary. So maybe if you've been, been watching documentaries recently, you'll get recommended this one. That's how I came across it. Uh, really fun movie. Great guy to talk to. Has a cool slate of other stuff that he's worked on so look forward to talking to him again and like like you were saying before i mean i I just think it's really inspiring that he seems like a guy who's just driven by what he's interested in and what he's excited about learning about and he and he lets that kind of drive his motivation in in making these films and and i just 100 percent agree this one couldn't have been more enjoyable it's a brisk watch it's you know i think only 70 75 minutes or something like that and it's really fun and 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 nostalgic and and, uh and really highly recommend it so even if netflix isn't serving it up to you directly i recommend you you seek it out because you won't regret it definitely all right with that i think that's a good good place to close out today it was uh as always great to see you my friend jason b true and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time that we get together to talk about another documentary that we've enjoyed. Likewise, my friend, it's always a blast. And folks out there, don't forget to have your pets spayed or neutered. 